This is Expand the Zone, a Major League Baseball podcast brought to you by The Score. Let's just be above replacement level. I don't give a crap. Sign Bryce Harper! I want to see good players hit baseballs far and strike out. Oh my god, the size of that man. This is a tangent, but whatever. I can say in earnest that I I do think the end is near. What is going on, people? It is Saturday, October 10th. I'm your host, Jonah Bierenbaum, joined remotely by my intrepid co-host, Michael Bradburn. That's me. On the docket today, we'll recap the League Division Series round and tee up the League Championship Series round. Before we get into that, a friendly reminder to download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. And if you dig Expand the Zone, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. Another round over and done with, my friend. The best of five league division series is history, and much like the wildcard round before it, it wasn't overly dramatic. Both National League series were sweeps, and only one American League series went to five games. As such, incidentally, the impact of the whole no days off wrinkle was minimal, but anyways... We're down to four teams, so without further ado, let's recap the League Division Series, and let's start with Dodgers-Padres. While there was some drama here, it wasn't much of a series, and I don't think it's revisionism to say the Padres had no chance. They came in with perhaps their top starter, Denelson Lamette, unavailable, and with their co-ace, Mike Clevenger, decidedly compromised. In light of that, if they were going to have any shot at an upset, they needed their stars to show up in a big way against Los Angeles, and they needed to play flawless baseball, and that didn't happen. Los Angeles' vaunted pitching staff neutralized San Diego's best hitters. Fernando Tatis Jr. went 2-for-11, albeit while having a home run stolen from him in Game 2. Manny Machado went 2-for-12, Eric Hosmer went 2-for-13, Will Myers went 1-for-10, and the Padres weren't all that sharp in the field either. There was a critical misplay in Game 1. Whether you want to attribute it to second baseman Jake Cronenworth or Eric Hosmer, their first baseman is up to you, but that allowed the tying run to score in the fifth inning, and the Dodgers pretty much didn't look back from that point onwards in the series. Whether that mistake or whether Fernando Tatis Jr.'s ill-advised throw in Game 3 were ultimately instrumental in the sweep, though, is debatable because the Dodgers lineup absolutely grinded down San Diego's decimated pitching staff. The Dodgers posted an on-base percentage of 409 for the series, and they walked almost as often as they struck out. They took 20 walks to just 22 strikeouts. Their ridiculously deep offense showed no relent, and even without hitting the ball out of the ballpark, they only hit one home run in the series, the Dodgers still scored 23 runs in three games. And it was pretty much as resounding a three-game sweep as there can be. I also don't think it should diminish how superb the Padres season was because there's simply no shame in losing to this Dodgers team who continue to demonstrate that they're pretty much unbeatable. Absolutely, yeah. The biggest takeaway here to me was how exciting Game 2 was and how much I felt while I was watching it that I needed this series to be a seven-game series. But even if we were getting a seven-game series out of this, it would have just been a four-game series because the Dodgers are just so much better. And the Padres honestly might be the second-best team in the league still. I think with a healthy Lamette and Clevenger, this is a closer series, but they needed Tatis, Machado, or Hosmer 
to come through against Joe Kelly in that ninth inning, and they they didn't do it. Admittedly, Tatis and Machado did their jobs, worked good at bats, ended up getting free passes and making it hard on Kelly, but you got to steal that game. Yeah, and, and while Joe Kelly, given how erratic he is, probably isn't the guy you want on the mound with the game on the line in the ninth inning, I do applaud Dave Roberts for yanking Kenley Jansen in that situation. Mm-hmm. And I think more broadly, Roberts deserves some credit for demonstrating growth as an in-game strategist. I I feel like in years past, he would have left Jansen out there to blow the save in game two. And I also think in years past, he probably would have sent Clayton Kershaw back Mm. out there in game two for the seventh inning, despite the fact that he started to look more vulnerable in the sixth. His pitch count was only 87 after that sixth inning, in which he allowed the Padres to cut their deficit to one. And the Padres had their bottom three hitters coming up. And historically, Roberts has been trusting and loyal to Kershaw to a fault in the postseason, but he operated differently this year. And I think he deserves some recognition for that. While at the same time, I can't give him an A-plus for his tactical maneuvering in the series because I have absolutely no idea why the Dodgers opted for an opener in Game 3 instead of just giving the ball to Tony Gonsolin or Julio Urias, both of whom were fully rested, neither of whom pitched in the wildcard series. The Dodgers don't need to resort to this kind of chicanery. But as I was saying on the previous episode, this team is almost invulnerable to bad decisions. They still won Game 3 when they opted for the opener, and it backfired on them by nine runs. Yeah, pretty remarkable. I'm a little less enthralled by... Roberts's management. I'll I'll give you the the Kershaw pull was a good move, but I don't know if I like the idea of going to Kelly there. I mean, definitely, definitely pull Kenley. That was a great, great bit of maneuvering. But Kelly, I don't know if that's the guy I want facing Tatis and Machado. It's not. But he had used Trinan. He had used Gratterall. At, at his best, Kelly is erratic. I think it's fair to say has like very good stuff. But like as we've seen from Kelly, he could not keep it over the plate, especially with his breaking ball. Tatis didn't swing at a single breaking ball that entire plate appearance. Machado didn't swing at a breaking ball that entire plate appearance. Hosmer comes up and swings at one that ends up in the dirt. And man, like that, it really felt like that was their chance. That was the Padres' chance to make it a series. And they squandered it. But they're a young team. They're up and coming. And the entire time watching the series, it felt like we were watching, you know, the first chapter of a decade's worth of rivalry. I'm sure they will like grow from this. And in the future, this will be a much tighter, much more contested series. At this point, the Dodgers are just so, so much better. And they showed why the entire time. Their depth is just stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, like there isn't a bad player on the Dodgers roster. All of their role players would probably start on other teams. And by the way, they've now gotten through the first two rounds of the postseason without even using Tony Gonsolin, who has a case for National League Rookie of the Year. Yeah, he really does. That's it's extremely weird. I just don't understand. Not only did they go with the opener, they went with like a double opener. And I don't even know if the plan was for Julio Urias to go that deep. He would just happen to look good. So Roberts kept him in. Like, do you think the plan was for Urias to go? Yo, oh yeah. I think he was definitely their bulk guy. I just don't understand why they felt they had to insulate him from facing the top of the Padres lineup in the first inning. Yeah, me neither. Of note, the guy you picked as an X-Factor, Max Muncy, looked very good this series with a 467 on base percentage. That's what you want. 
And we already discussed my X Factor, who was Dave Roberts. And yeah, I, I think it's fair to go with your assessment that he at least showed growth this series. Having a quicker hook on Kershaw shows growth. Having a hook at all on Kenley is good. Plus, after the game, showing a willingness to say, like, maybe Kenley isn't my closer. That's a Roberts we have not seen before. Yeah, I'm really curious, frankly, who gets the first save situation in the National League Championship Series. I bet Kenley still gets the first opportunity, mm. but I'm but I bet he does more matchups. And I wager Brewstar is is the next guy. Yeah, but Gratterall, as hard as he throws, he really doesn't miss a lot of bats. Yeah, he doesn't. Not a strikeout guy. And in like modern bullpens, all guys are strikeout guys. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, including the Padres, and they couldn't strike the Dodgers out. No, who can strike the Dodgers out, though? Like, it's crazy how good this team is. And yeah. As you noted off the top, only one home run. And off the bat of Cody Ballinger, who seems to have woken up a little bit after a pretty meh regular season. And, and that was my next point, is that Cody Ballinger performing at the level he's capable of really does make this team seem unbeatable. Yeah, and he was always a, a top-ish prospect, like fringe top prospect. The only thing that always kept him back was that he had a lot of swing and miss in his game and that he was stuck at first base. And yet, the best catch I've maybe ever seen in postseason play is Bellinger's home run robbery of Fernando Tatis Jr. I don't know how he suddenly became a very good center fielder who still hits like he's an elite first baseman. Yeah, he, he's ridiculous. And he's a huge reason why the Dodgers remain undefeated in the postseason. All right, so moving on, let's talk about the Braves-Marlins series, which, much like Dodgers-Padres, ended in three games with the higher-seeded team blowing out the lower-seeded team after a somewhat back-and-forth affair in the series opener. The Braves took charge of the series, shutting out the Marlins in games two and three. And they also remain perfect this postseason. They have yet to lose a game, and their one weakness, which is their starting pitching depth, has not been a factor because they've wrapped up both of their series so expediently. And I think their three-game sweep of Miami really illustrated how deep their lineup is because they didn't get a tremendous offensive performance from Freddie Freeman. They didn't get a tremendous offensive performance from Ozzy Albies. Marcelo Zuna was held to a OPS below 700. Nick Markakis went two for 12, and yet they still scored 18 runs in three games against the Marlins. And that's a testament to how much their quote-unquote secondary hitters contribute. Dansby Swanson has blossomed into a really, really good hitter. Same goes for Travis Darno, who was the Braves' offensive engine in the NLDS. And their lineup is almost as formidable as Los Angeles's. And while they're not going to be able to only start Max Freed, Ian Anderson, and Kyle Wright in a best-of-seven series, between those top three guys, the strength of their bullpen, and the strength of their lineup, the Braves look mighty fine. Absolutely, yeah. And they and they did this all without a very strong outing in Game 1 from Max Freed, their, their ace as well. I'm a little bit sad they didn't steal that game because it would have been a little bit more fun. But as you noted, the Braves lineup just too dang good. If you didn't pay attention to the Braves this year, this is Travis Darno's coming out party. Like he is just unbelievably good. And I can't get over how good he is behind the plate too. Like watching him receive and work with all of these pitchers. He's just amazing. And you know, you got to feel bad for the Mets the next round because <laughs> Travis Darno 
DFA'd by the Mets, will be facing off against Justin Turner, DFA'd by the Mets, the poor Mets. Yeah, no kidding. I really did think the Marlins would win this series. I don't know why, and I picked them, and I'm wrong. And and I'm kind of glad I'm wrong, to be honest, because the Braves are the better team. Ian Anderson, I expected a strong outing. Kyle Wright, I really did not, and he definitely proved me wrong. Three hits over six innings with seven Ks and only two walks, and like that was a huge issue for him all year. He was not missing bats, and he was throwing outside the zone way, way too much. Well, that's the thing is that I don't actually think he was that sharp in Game 3. I think Game 3 was mostly illustrated by the fact that the Marlins aren't a good offensive team Mm. and are particularly vulnerable against right-handed pitchers. If Kyle Wright has that same outing against a competent offense, an above-average offense, I don't think the Braves win that game. Or at least I think it's certainly not a blowout for Atlanta, but the Marlins couldn't capitalize because that's the one area in which they very much look like a rebuilding team still, especially with Starling Marte missing the whole series. For sure, yeah. I I don't like Wright going forward against the Dodgers. Yeah, so I want to focus on, on the Marlins for a second. Does this season change their organizational trajectory, their short-term goals? Do they proceed moving forwards like they're suddenly in the middle of a competitive window? Yeah, it's a great question, to be honest. I was thinking this myself, too. I don't think they have to go out and get guys to think they're still in the middle of the NL East. Like, this team is still, I don't know, the NL East is so difficult to pin, too, because... Like, there are four good teams, presumably all better than the Marlins going forward. However, I really do kind of think the Marlins and the Phillies are probably in the same place. Yeah, I don't think so. I I still think, in spite of what 2020 yielded, that they're still quite a bit worse than the Phillies. Like, I think the Phillies are a couple relievers away from being there. And I don't think that the Marlins, as impressive as their top three starters are, and as well as they acquitted themselves in 2020, are a couple tweaks away, or even one major free agent signing away. Like, I think if they were to start moving long-term assets for short-term, medium-term value, I don't know that that's going to make them a playoff team in 2021. For sure, yeah. You you still have to go big picture if you're running the Marlins. You've got a very young staff that you're hoping grows into its own. You've got quite good prospects coming up. However, yes, as you're noting, this team is not like signing George Springer this winter away from being a like juggernaut or legitimate World Series contender. I just think they can hang in the NL East with this current roster so long as you continue to see growth from the starting pitchers from other areas and there's like small investments made. You know, the bullpen does not look very good. You still need a couple hitters. However, the addition of Starling Marte at this year's trade deadline, which I kind of openly mocked, to be honest, because I didn't understand the move. Now it looks quite smart. So if they continue to move like that, I think they will put themselves in a good chance to be a wild card team going forward. And I, I think that's kind of what you want from this Marlins team. I don't think they have greatness in their near term. However, this little show of strength was fun to follow and should give them something to work with moving forward. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely reaffirmed that there's something to build around here. Coming into the 2020 season, I didn't think that the Marlins had really anything at the major league level yet that could serve as a foundation moving forward. And they have that in their top three starters, 
I think Brian Anderson has demonstrated that he's a potential cornerstone, and I'm certainly more bullish about their rebuild than I was three months ago. But enough about the Marlins. It'll be the Braves and Dodgers in the best of seven NLCS. The Dodgers are returning to the NLCS for the fourth time in the last five seasons. The Braves are returning to the NLCS for the first time since 2001. It has been a minute for Atlanta. But I gotta say, this is a pretty compelling matchup. These two teams are pretty close to one another on paper. The Dodgers lineup was elite this year. So was Atlanta's. The Dodgers have a couple of aces. So does Atlanta. Dodgers bullpen is really good. So is Atlanta's. The only meaningful disparity to me here between these two teams is the mid-rotation starters, the starting rotation depth. I do think that those depth starters could play an outsized role in determining the result of this best of seven series with no off days. But this, to me, very much has the makings of a seven-game showdown. I do think the Braves lineup just lacks depth going up against the Dodgers. Like, there's no easy out on the Dodgers lineup. That's fair to say. Yes, it is. But if everyone in Atlanta's lineup is hitting up to their capability, there aren't really any soft spots there either. It's true. Who, who's their with worst Riley. hitter? Who's their worst hitter? It might, it might be. Riley, definitely. I, I think it's Nick Markakis. Okay. And, and, yeah. and that illustrates, given the fact that Nick Markakis is essentially a league average hitter, how much depth they do have. Yeah, that's fair. But if I have a lineup with Riley and Markakis at the bottom of it, those are outs I consider quite easy if I'm the Dodgers. And maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but I truly do not think the Dodgers possess a single easy out in their lineup at all on any given day. Yeah. If there's one catcher in, in baseball that can offensively hang with Travis Darnot too, it's Will Smith right now. Mm-hmm. Will Smith is insane. I truly, honestly think Will Smith might be the best catcher in baseball overall, even better than Real Muto, but that's probably a take for another day. Who, who has the single best position player in this series? Is it the Dodgers with Mookie Betts or Cody Bellinger, or is it the Braves with Ronald Acuna Jr.? Or Freddie Freeman. Yeah, I mean, Freeman's going to win the NL MVP, so I don't know how you can argue against him. However, I still think it's Mookie Betts, right? Yeah. Acuna's but yeah, it's a, gr- so it's a great good, point. Though. Yeah. Cody Bellinger showed some weakness this year. He just has the ability to, like, turn it on at any time, I guess, and be the best player in, in any seven-game series. It's hard to tell who Bellinger is at any given moment. But yeah, it's a great point, too. This is a very star-driven series. This is the series you wanted if you were a baseball fan, I think. Yeah, it was either Dodgers-Braves or Dodgers-Padres. For sure. You make a great point off the top, too. Max Freed can hang with Walker Buehler, no problem. And, like, this version of Ian Anderson that we've seen in the playoffs might actually hang with Clayton Kershaw, which is bananas. He's been nothing short of exceptional through his first eight starts in the big leagues, regular season and postseason combined. Yeah. So, really, these teams are pretty close to each other, surprisingly close considering the fact that I opened this episode saying the Padres are the second best team in the National League. And honestly, the Braves might be. It's going to be a good one. Uh, Moving on, let's shift our focus to the American League and break down the first ALDS matchup to conclude, which was the highly anticipated Astros Athletics Series, in which the favored Oakland Athletics were upset by the suddenly hard-charging Houston Astros, who, after a decidedly underwhelming sub-500 regular season are starting to look more and more like the juggernaut they were a year ago when they went to Game 7 of the World Series and like they've been for the better part of the last half decade. The Astros' offense, despite being loaded with stars, strangely didn't click during the regular season. Well, they've turned it on. 
The caveat being that the ball was absolutely flying out of Dodger Stadium in those four games between Oakland and Houston, but in four games against the Athletics, who have arguably the game's best bullpen, the Astros put up 10 runs, 5 runs, 7 runs, and 11 runs. They hit the bejesus out of the baseball. And for the fourth year in a row, as much as people are loath to see it, the Astros are going to be playing for the pennant. Please kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that was honestly a pretty universal reaction to the Astros' victory over Oakland, who frankly were undone by the same deficiency that bit them in last year's postseason and the year prior. The A's just didn't get enough quality innings out of their starters. In four games against Houston, none of their starters made it out of the fifth inning. We were more bullish about their rotation heading into this year's postseason. We figured Jesus Lazardo, who was inconsistent but showed flashes of brilliance during the regular season as a rookie, could be a difference maker. He wasn't. We figured Chris Bassett, who somewhat unexpectedly emerged as the top option in this rotation this year, would at least give them a competitive outing against Houston. He didn't either. Frankie Montes' struggles continued. He was no good in the decisive Game 4. And that ultimately just put too much of a burden on Oakland's bullpen. And as good as their relief core is, like we cautioned heading into the series, you can't ask your bullpen to get 60% of your outs every single night. Yeah, and what was really weird to me was Melvin's usage of the bullpen too. Like, I I just don't understand. This team entered the postseason with one of the best bullpens in all of baseball, and he's acting like Liam Hendricks is the only one who can get outs. And honestly, the A's have ceased being just like a very good team looking for postseason luck at this point. And now they're a great team who can't get it done in October because they won't invest in their roster. And that's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and in addition to their reluctance to spend, obviously, they just don't seem to have success developing top-of-the-line starting pitchers either. Maybe that changes with Lazardo and with A.J. Puck, but Shamanaya, whom they acquired in trade, they didn't draft, he's more of a mid-rotation guy. As good as Chris Bassett was this year, the peripherals suggest he's more of a mid-rotation guy too. And it feels like developmentally they need to change something because this has been their Achilles heel for a while now. And it doesn't seem to change. Yeah, I'm with you for sure. The The one part of Moneyball that gets criticized, I think, is the fact that they overlook the fact that Barry Zito, Tim Hudson, and Mark Mulder were all elite and homegrown pitchers. And that's something that that old A's squad did very well. And to your point, this team is not doing it very well. Lazardo, also not homegrown, came over in the Sean Doolittle trade. And he's incredibly young. And has incredible swing and miss stuff. But he may not be as elite as I once thought. Also, this team carried Mike Fires on their postseason roster. And was too scared to use him against the Astros. Like, why is he on the roster if you're just not going to use him? That's a great question. There's no point. Especially the way Montes had been pitching. I'm not sure that he was a better option to start game four than Mike Fires. Yeah, I don't know. The... For a while in game four, watching Montes, I thought he was back. Like, I thought we were seeing 2019 Frankie Montes. But, yeah, second time through the order, he looked extremely exposed, was not executing pitches. And, honestly, that's the same issue we saw with Lazardo. to be honest. On those pitches, he missed his spots. They got crushed. And that's Lazardo's issue. I mean, he's he's young. Again, I can't overstate how young he is. 
how he's working on stuff. But you got to command at this level. You got to command against this Astros lineup. And when you're missing spots that badly at the top of the zone, it's rough. And like, there's a there's a lot going on in his mechanics. And I don't know what to do about that. Yeah, and I think I'd be remiss too if I didn't point out that there was a decent amount of pressure on Oakland to capitalize this year. They're losing Liam Hendricks, as you alluded to. They're almost certainly going to lose Marcus Semyon as well. And it's possible that those losses are offset by strides made by the young pitchers that we've rattled off. But it really feels like they squandered an opportunity here. And especially considering, you know, they were looking forward to playing the Astros. And the Astros are certainly talented, but they're hardly perfect. Yeah, for sure. If Semyon leaves and Hendricks leaves, I don't know if there's a difference between this team and the Colorado Rockies. Like just a team full of Jags with an incredibly good third baseman. And we don't know how long Arenado's staying in Colorado. If the A's are that bad, we don't know how long Matt Chapman is staying in Oakland either. Like this is how quickly this team can fall apart. I know there's other stars on this team too. Like Matt Olson is a very underappreciated slugger. Mark Canna is quite underappreciated as well. But like, like you're not you're not relying on Chad Pinder or Ramon Laureano to be absolute studs for you. Sometimes it really is hard for this A's team to win, but sometimes it really feels like they don't care about winning that much. A team, however, that does care very much about winning is the Astros. And I know that using a four-game sample to suggest that a 60-game sample was not reflective of this team's true talent level is a logical fallacy. I know that. But at the same time, at the very least, their series against Oakland reminded everyone what this lineup is capable of when everyone's clicking. I mean, my God, this was the lineup that last year was evoking comparisons to Murderer's Row. They led the majors in WRC Plus by a mile. It's the same lineup. When those guys are performing at the level that they've demonstrated they're capable of, and I don't just mean in 2017 when the team was stealing signs, I mean throughout their careers, this Astros lineup is incredible. And truly everyone clicked as well. Like we we saw your X-Factor, George Springer, continue his success from the wildcard series into the American League Division Series. And it really only felt like the Astros would probably beat the A's or would at least hang with the A's with like one of their additional stars finding their way. But instead of one of them, literally everyone just put on their hitting pants and slugged. Like Carlos Correa, who looked incredible in the first round as well, went seven for 14 with three homers and 11 RBI, which is insane. I know I don't care about RBI, but like still. Jose Altuve woke up, which is the most revelatory to me. Like this team will go a lot further if Jose Altuve looks anything like his MVP form which eluded him all season. He looked terrible all Mm -hmm. year, all year. Bregman was pretty ho-hum during the regular season as well. Even he posted an 1100 OPS and I'm worried about it. Worried about it because you think they're capable of winning the World Series? Yes, Mm. in the sense that I don't want them to win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can though. And I think that this series was emblematic of the blueprint they'll need to follow to beat the Tampa Bay Rays. They need to hit because as well as they're somewhat decimated pitching staff acquitted itself. I'm concerned about their ability to keep runs off the board. Oakland is not a terrific offense, and they gave up a lot of runs to the athletics. And Zach Greinke, he was dealing with arm trouble that got him pushed to game four. Didn't look sharp in that start. Frankly, I was surprised that he 
even took the ball that day. And as good as Framber Valdez is, and he is very good, I don't know that I'm buying into Lance McCullers either. He was very, very shaky in his Division Series outing, and he just generally wasn't as dominant this year as he was prior to Tommy John surgery. Dusty Baker did a really good job managing his bullpen and using guys in unconventional ways to not expose some of the less trustworthy arms in his bullpen, but in a best of seven, I don't know that you're going to be able to insulate those guys. There are eight rookies in the Astros' bullpen, and I really think it's imperative that they continue to swing the bats at a high level to stay alive in this postseason. Couldn't agree more, and they're up against probably their nightmare, in my opinion. This Rays team's bread and butter is run prevention, and I don't really think there's any team built more for preventing runs in postseason games than the Rays. I do want to touch on your point. If you had Dusty Baker good bullpen management on your postseason bingo card, congratulations to you because, holy crap, that's not the thing Dusty Baker's known for, and yet he's been very good. Credit to him, man. Even at his advanced age, he keeps learning. He's learning from his past mistakes, and I think he was critical to their success, certainly in the wildcard round, but also in the division series as well. Truly, and I want to give like a brief shout to Anoli Paredes, who I truly know almost nothing about, and he's looked unhittable, spotting up at 100, seemingly wherever he wants to put it, which is just insane. They're going to need him to show up in the next round for sure. Spotting up at 100 like he's the seventh man out of Tampa Bay's bullpen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Uh, Speaking of which, let's move on to our final ALDS matchup, which was Rays and Yankees and ended up being the most compelling, the most dramatic series that we got in the League Division Series round. The Rays outlasted the Yankees in five games with Game 5 on Friday night, providing perhaps the postseason's most watchable game thus far. Garrett Cole starting on short rest opposite Tyler Glasnow, who was also starting on short rest in a game that was ultimately decided by a Mike Brasso home run off a Roldis Chapman in the eighth inning. You couldn't possibly script a more theatrical and to some poetic finish than that. Obviously, the two have a history. Chapman had thrown over Brasso's head at 101 during the regular season, leading to a benches-clearing brouhaha. And for Game 5, for the series to be decided in that fashion, kisses fingers Sheffield. But this was just a remarkably evenly matched series between two exceptional teams, and I don't think that their defeat is an indictment on these Yankees. I just think that in a five-game series between two good teams, one good team has to lose. Their hitters did a pretty admirable job against a run-suppressing behemoth that is the Tampa Bay Rays staff, and I think perhaps the one deficiency this did expose about the Yankees is their lack of starting pitching depth. Hmm. Outside of Garrett Cole, they did not get a quality start from anyone. Masahiro Tanaka, who struggled in the wildcard round, struggled as well in the division series. In Game 2, very, very curiously, the Yankees decided to go with Davey Garcia as an opener to then be followed by Jay Happ. That was, I think, misbegotten from the get-go and compounded by the fact that Aaron Boone did a very poor job communicating what the plan was to the various pitchers involved. But the fact that they decided to go that route highlighted the lack of confidence internally in their starting pitching options. And then the other pitcher who got a start in the series was Jordan Montgomery, who wasn't allowed to turn a lineup over more than twice. He pitched four innings. So 
I do think that is a concern to them. But then again, Luis Severino should be back next year, so that mitigates it a little bit. The Yankees could have easily won this series. They didn't, and their World Series drought continues. But that's how it goes in baseball. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only true deficiency, I mean, as you noted, was the starting pitching, but also a small edge to Kevin Cash over Aaron Boone because, I mean, game five has so many storylines in itself that it's hard to remember game two, but I really cannot overstate how bad of a move going with Davey Garcia, who can eat innings and is quite good, as an opener to just go to Jay Happ when your two best relievers are also left-handed. Like, part of the strategy of the opener is to go, like, right-left-right or left-right-left so that you're mixing up on hitters, making the Rays specifically use their pinch hitters, burn them, so that they can't come back to bite you later in the game. And going with Davey, then Happ, shows a huge misunderstanding for how the opener should work. If you're the Yankees and you have a better bullpen than maybe any ever constructed, you should be going with Chapman or Britton as an opener or Ottavino if you want to go right-handed. And then if you went left in the first inning, use Davey to eat some innings because he's honestly better than Jay Happ. What are you doing burning Davey Garcia in order to give more innings to Jay Happ? That doesn't make sense. Davey Garcia threw one inning in the series. It really doesn't make sense. I thought he would be available and come out for game five, but honestly, they went with a much better strategy, to be perfectly honest, of just rolling with their elitist relievers. And it still did not work because Mike Brasso hit the best home run, narrative-wise, that I've ever seen in my entire life. Aroldis Chapman, by the way, still has to serve his suspension for going up and in on Mike Brasso, hmm. which just adds incredible narrative to this. I love that in a year so unusual in so many ways, we still got Aroldis Chapman giving up a mammoth home run in the postseason. He kind of has a knack for this. Last year, it was Jose Honestly. Altuve in the American League Championship Series. In 2016, it was Rajai Davis. I don't think there's anything to be gleaned from that, mm. but it is quite an anomaly that arguably the most dominant relief pitcher in history has given up some iconic season-ending October home runs. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Quite. And speaking of remarkable, what more can you say about the Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff, Kevin Cash's masterful ability to use all those arms at his disposal, and also, notably, how different Charlie Morton looks now than he did at the beginning of the season. He did not look right at the start of the campaign. His velocity was way down. He struggled over four starts, ended up landing on the injured list for about four weeks with shoulder inflammation. Since rejoining the rotation in September, his velocity has steadily been increasing, and it peaked during his game three start against New York when he allowed only one earned run over five innings and struck out six. I was already plenty confident in Tampa Bay's ability to stymie its opponents, but Morton being back to the version of himself that he was in 2019 and 2018 is absolutely massive. Yeah, Morton is an interesting weapon, but so too is this bullpen strategy Cash went with in this final game as well. Like, we knew he had Nick Anderson, Pete Fairbanks, and Diego Castillo at his disposal, but we didn't know Nick Anderson could get eight outs. We didn't know Fairbanks would pitch two innings and Castillo would pitch another two innings. Like, 
Cash just continues to amaze me with, with all this bullpen management and the fact that it continues to work. Like Nick Anderson got more outs than Tyler Glass now. And I didn't see that coming at all. And honestly, it really did feel like Boone was constantly reacting to what Cash was doing during that game instead of, you know, taking control of the game. And it should have felt like the Yankees had control with Garrett Cole on the mound. Yeah, he he certainly did his part. And while the Yankees didn't realize the goal that they set for themselves when they gave Garrett Cole that $324 million contract, he, in his first season with New York, proved he's worth every single penny. In his three postseason starts, he put up an ERA of 295. And specifically, in Game 5 of the ALDS, with their season on the line, with Cole pitching on short rest, he came back and flirted with a no-hitter for four innings and was absolutely masterful. His command was a little bit off early, but he quickly rectified that and was so overpowering, gave the Yankees exactly what they needed with their season on the line. The offense just couldn't muster anything against Glasnow and the parade of relievers that Kevin Cash sent out. For sure. He did what you need your ace to do. And as you noted earlier, with Severino coming back, hopefully healthy by opening day 2021, this team will be back in this position again. And and I'm sure Cole will look just as elite, if not more so. He's unbelievable. He's one of the best pitchers, if not the best pitcher in the game. He struck out 30 Earn- batters in 18 and a third innings this postseason. If that's not earning your $300 million contract, I don't know what is. Truly, just a god on the mound. And even if you have to deal with Higashioka at the bottom of your lineup as a result of going with Cole, I don't even think that's that bad. Higashioka was decent this postseason. Yeah, and he essentially supplanted Gary Sanchez uh, midway through the division series as their starting catcher. That's how bad Gary Sanchez had been, both offensively and behind the plate. And Aaron Boone said, coming into Game 3... Because it was Tanaka on the mound, and Gary Sanchez always works with Tanaka, that Higashioka has simply earned more playing time. And that's uh-huh. a it's very a- interesting storyline to follow heading into this offseason, because who knows what the Yankees do with Gary Sanchez if they try to trade him. I don't even know. Yeah, it's incredibly telling that Higashioka was pinch hit for, and not pinch hit for by Gary yeah. Sanchez himself. Like, they went to Mike Ford, and then defensively replaced with Gary Sanchez. Like, that's a Pretty big slap in the face to Gary Sanchez, in my opinion. But, like, deservedly so. He wasn't producing. You know who was producing was Randy Rosarena, who continues to steal the show in the postseason. It's a small sample, but my goodness, does he ever look like he could be an elite big league hitter. Every time he's at the plate, he just scalds the baseball, and he was inches away from another home run off Garrett Cole in Game 5. It was stolen away by a leaping Brett Gardner. Without him, I don't know that the Rays mount enough offense in this series to win, uh, truly. Yeah, that's a great point. The Cuban Mookie Betts, they call him. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks to the Cuban Mookie Betts, the Rays are heading back to the American League Championship Series for the first time since 2008, when they memorably lost in the World Series to the Philadelphia Phillies, where they will play the Houston Astros, whom they lost to in five games last year in the American League Division Series. And... This is a really interesting matchup because these two teams have opposite strengths, I believe. The Astros are offense-oriented, their regular season notwithstanding, and the Rays' success is largely built on their pitching staff. And I think that's going to make for a really interesting series. I think it's possible that the Rays 
wipe the floor with Houston, but I also think it's possible that this series goes seven games and the Astros come out on top. I don't really foresee the Astros smoking them like they did Oakland, but in any event, the composition of these two teams is going to make for a pretty entertaining series. Absolutely. The Rays are kind of on the offensive side, at least like Dodgers light, right? Am I, am I fair to say Absolutely that? Or am I just like two? Yeah. Absolutely not. Really? No. The Dodgers literally have three of the game's best hitters in their lineup. The Rays have no one who would be considered an elite hitter. Brandon Lau's really good. He has struggled in the postseason, but beyond him, it's more just a collection of good hitters, of solid hitters. And they, for the most part, have them one through nine. There's depth there, but in terms of star power, they don't compare. I mean, maybe I'm putting a lot of work on the word light, but that is kind of what I mean by light. Like, there's no easy outs, save for the catcher's position. Maybe the A's are a better proxy, to be perfectly honest. They're just like a lot of really difficult outs. But again, as you said, no stars. And even Brandon Lau, like down the stretch, did not look that great. Down the stretch of the regular season. Like, he's he's been not elite for quite some time. And that has me a bit worried about their prospects going forward. Because if Randy Rosarena cools down and Brandon Lau stays cool, I don't know. Like, you got to have one guy in your lineup who's very good, right? And I don't know who that is if Lau isn't it and if a Rosarena cools down. Mm -hmm. But if their pitching staff does what it can do, they're not going to have to scrape together all that much offense. But it's going to be challenging for their pitchers. All right, then. Prediction time. NLCS, who you got? I've got Dodgers and five. Yeah, I want to go with Atlanta, but I can't do that in good conscience. Dodgers in six. American League, who you got? Before we go any further, to be honest, you've been right in like all of these so far, right? Other than Yankees race. And I've been wrong in almost (laughs) all of them. Other than Yankees race. I overestimated how many games it would take the Dodgers to beat the Padres, but I did predict Braves in three, Astros in four. So yeah, I would say I had a pretty good division series prediction wise anyway ALCS who you got that was me essentially stalling to be honest because I I don't know I I I can't keep betting against this Astros team I can't but I'm going to I picked the Rays to win the World Series at the beginning of all this it would be stupid to jump off that wagon now so I've got Rays in seven yeah and I think I need to stop underestimating the Rays so I too I'm gonna go with Tampa Bay in six I like it it, it sh- You're a little more confident than me. It sure would be fun to see the Dodgers and Astros go at it again, but I don't see it happening. It would. You're absolutely right. And there's a little voice inside my head that says, like, maybe I do want to see Alex Bregman hit a clutch home run off of Joe Kelly in the World Series. Maybe I do want to see Dusty Baker win his first World Series championship. Maybe it's okay if Zach Greinke gets a ring. But no, it's absolutely not okay, any of those things. Well, the World Series is a long ways away, my friend. They are four big wins away. Will they get there? We'll find out. And on that note, I think that'll do it for today's episode of Expand the Zone. Once more, before we sign off, a friendly reminder to download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. And if you dig the podcast, it's available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. That's Michael. I'm Jonah. We'll see you next time on Expand the Zone. <laughs>